Hey, this is part of our two-part series on COVID-19 and Ontario politics. If you have not yet heard our last one we released on Tuesday, it is an interview with Dr. David Coletto of Abacus Data on Canadian attitudes, how Canadians are feeling right now, and how volatile this electorate is. It's a great pod. You should go listen to it. We pick up where we left off with David here with Grima, Alvin, myself, and Harmon to talk about the policy implications. Let's dive in. Welcome back to Ontario Loud. I'm still Chris Martin. Alvin is still here too. And we are continuing our discussion of the changing dynamics in Ontario's political landscape with Grima Talwar Kapoor and Harman Mundy. In addition to being an Ontario Loud co-host, Grima is Director of Policy at the Matri Foundation, a charitable organization dedicated to promoting systemic solutions to poverty. Harman, in addition to being a volunteer here at Ontario Loud, helped on NDP leader Jagmeet Singh's leadership campaign and is completing his master's in public admin at Queen's University. How's everyone doing? Welcome back. Good. How are you doing? How are you feeling? <laughs> you know, earlier on, David Coletto uh, said, a little lonely, a little anxious, and I feel like that's the uh, it's just going to be the way of it for a couple months. Mm-hmm. Chris, I'm excited to be back on the pod with uh, a couple of new co-hosts. Um, we had two different people, I think, the last time I was on, and uh, and really excited to uh, to start working with Harmon and uh, Grima in the uh, in the future. So, yeah, this is great. Cool. I well, what the initial question is, but I'm also excited to be here. <laughs> <laughs> we are excited to have you. Uh, and the question was how you were doing. So it was uh, it was a hit, the hard hitting questions we ask here at Ontario Lab. Why don't I write back in with two things that have fundamentally disrupted Ontario politics? One, the introduction of a new leader of the Ontario Liberal Party and the introduction of a little global pandemic that has disrupted the foundation of our society and threatens our way of life as we know it. Yay. Doug Ford is riding high in the polls right now, um, or as high as he has run in his entire time in government. And the dynamics of our politics and our society in general are pretty up in the air right now. So first, maybe let's deal with the rise in popularity we've seen in the polls for the PCs. David Coletto uh, talked about it being the result of people looking for leadership, and they are liking that they're seeing government sort of take action. I'm curious for just like, how do we see this playing out? I think it's really hard to say right now. I think, first off, Canadians and people in Ontario are just happy to hear honesty and integrity coming from our political leadership. And there's a collaborative, uh, a serious collaborative effort between different levels of government, irrespective of their political stripe. And I think that that's um, really important, and especially at this time, and uh, we don't have to look that far, just south of the border, to see what um, how disinformation can just fuel the flames of of this pandemic. And so, I think Canadians and people in Ontario are pleased with their political leadership first and foremost because they're getting um, they're getting honest answers from not just political leadership, actually, but also civil servants um, such as our chief medical officers of health are being empowered to speak directly to the public through the media. Yeah, I I think that before coronavirus, if we can think of a time before COVID, our politics were deeply polarized along along a number of different cleavages. And, And so the idea that we have somehow come from a deeply vitriolic nature of political discourse 
to seeing our political leadership working together, I think is probably the best thing that is happening coming out of this pandemic at this time. I mean, I I always find responses to these types of crises very interesting to to follow in terms of where um, where the public is. I mean, I think the premier understands how important this is, and that. I'm not convinced, politically speaking, that this is going to be the thing that saves the premier and and means that he's going to be automatically reelected in the next election. But certainly there was opportunity to make missteps. I'm not saying their response has been perfect, but they've exceeded expectations, I guess, considering however low the bar might have been. And it shows that he's mature enough to understand that it's a serious situation and he's listening to civil servants and he's doing what I would say is at least the bare minimum of showing compassion and taking it seriously and trying to have the right tone with the public. And I think he's getting a lot of credit for that. Now, the challenge is going to be this is going to be a much longer crisis than people, I think, are realizing. And can they maintain that? And will people's perception of the government's response and to the premier change over time when we look at more of the stats and the numbers as they come in the upcoming weeks and compare ourselves to the US or compare ourselves to other provinces and how they're responding. So I think it'll be really interesting to uh, to continue to follow this from political side. And always at the beginning, there's a sense that we need to come together. Yeah. So before I talk about Doug Ford at all, I want to take us back to 2001. <laughs> The United States had just experienced the greatest attack against its nation since Pearl Harbor, um, and the level of fear and anxiety that was being felt among Americans and even in Canada and much of the Western world was at an all-time high. We're all keenly aware that the world is not going to be the same in 2021 as it was in 2019 before the crisis. And President Bush saw an overall jump in approval to 90% after the, the attacks on the Twin Towers, which was the highest in the history of Gallup polling. But even with that fear and anxiety being absolute, Bush's approvals began to steadily decline over the course of the next year. And other moments in history that do invoke that rally around the flag effect have had similar trajectories, where there's an immediate growth in support then a steady return to normal. And that this kind of popularity is very difficult to sustain because it's dependent on uncertainty and anxiety that will go away after time, even if the crisis doesn't end, a sense of normalcy will settle in. So we're still only two weeks out. We're still two or more weeks out from the peak of this crisis. We have no idea what it's going to be like, how bad it's actually going to get in Canada, and how the government continues to respond to to that over these next two, three, four weeks is going to be really instructive of how you know the next two years of their government will will play out. I think the best aspect of this is really that the visible anger and frustration we see in the premier with those who are attempting to take advantage of others, and I don't know about y'all, but I find that a little bit you know reassuring that like yeah, like the premier gets like why like a why like I may fear. Uh, feel f- afraid at this time, but also why I'm angry and like why I'm pissed off with people just being, you know, kind of dumb and panic buying toilet paper or price price gouging. Like that's not okay. And yeah. I think it's really good that the premier is directly addressing those issues. 
Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think a lot about bar setting in politics. And, you know, right now, the bar is uh, has been set really low for the premier by the p- previous public expectations for him and also the performance of Donald Trump in the States. And um, I wonder how that shifts as we start to feel the more real impact of the policy response that the government has has instituted. So I'm curious, maybe you'd like to dive into the policy a little bit. Uh, what do we think of the actual government response right now? Um, I think that the government's tone, as we've discussed, has been appreciated by by many people across the province, and it's reflected in the news coverage and the polling data that we're seeing. But I will say that I was really looking forward to this week's fiscal update that the province tabled in lieu of a formal budget for the spring. And I unfortunately think that it was a bit of a missed opportunity. There was a lot of headlines around Ontario investing $17 billion to help respond to the COVID-19 pandemic. But many of those investments went for tax deferrals or payroll tax deferrals for businesses and corporations, for example. And there was little, I'd say, in investment in people directly or in public systems. I don't want to undermine um, the government investing $935 million in healthcare or in the hospital sector, which is important, but I don't think goes far enough to respond to the COVID-19 crisis, even when we take into account what the federal government has invested in hospitals. A $160 million bump for public health is welcome, but I mean, we just, we have to look to last year's budget to remember that the government was hoping to save $200 million in public health by 2021. And there's a lot of dollars set aside for contingency funding so that the government has the space to immediately respond to emerging issues for COVID, which is great. But next to the healthcare crisis is the economic and social crisis uh, that the pandemic is creating. While the federal government has announced significant announcements to address the income insecurity that millions of Canadians are going to face. I don't think that the Ontario government rose to that occasion uh, for their fiscal update this week. For example, there were announcements in doubling the guaranteed annual income supplement for seniors, for very low-income seniors, which provides them a bump of $83 per month for a couple of months. There's a one-time child benefit of $200 for most kids per kid, essentially to help with the onset costs that self-isolation and and physical distancing is creating. But these aren't ongoing supports for families, many of whom would have seen a reduction or complete a reduction in their employment or complete unemployment. But what's missing for me is direct income support for the most vulnerable in our society. And that includes people living in deepest poverty or receiving social assistance. So there's been a lot of fanfare about what the government has announced. There was no rate increase embedded in in the program. And this is the first time in years that social assistance recipients won't see even a marginal increase to their income support, which is already uh, devastatingly low. 
I'm still, and I think we've we've seen some of the conservative thinking jump through in op-ed pages this week. I was reading just this morning an op-ed by Andrew Coyne that was sort of worrying about the fact that increasing those kind of direct support payments, either through payroll subsidies to businesses to keep employees on or through direct payments to people could be abused and that governments should be thinking and mindful of this. And I just want to like, it just frustrated me so much, like the economic damage that this pandemic could create. The risk of that far outweigh and under meeting this need far outweighs the risk of some limited abuse of the of the system like because that that worry about that abuse is like that people will be incented out of the workforce and we want people out of the friggin workforce right now for sure but i also think that's all based on a very antiquated idea of our income security or social architecture and is rooted in like political ideology from like the 80s if we actually assess social assistance caseload rates across the country, despite the devastatingly low rates that are provided to people receiving social assistance, the caseloads are not decreasing. But despite, you know, pre-COVID, our labor market doing really well and our political leadership really touting, you know, that their leadership has been the catalyst for for driving economic growth and labor market growth. We just did not see that reflected in social assistance caseload rates. And and I think that that is revealing of a lot. It a um, tells us that you can't um, simply deprive people so much of their dignity that they're just simply compelled to work. Work is not great for many people. And we're seeing that now in the fallout of COVID-19. And people have multiple issues that they're grappling with as they're trying to stabilize their lives. And that includes um, mental health and addictions issues. That that includes not being adequately housed. And all of these issues are just going to become more exacerbated as a result of the pandemic, if we don't use the opportunity now to adequately respond. What about the actual like healthcare response? Uh, Alvin, I know you're doing some thinking about that. I mean, obviously, the government's been getting a lot of credit for seemingly reacting quickly. Let's not forget the fact that the day we shut down schools, the premiers told everybody to go enjoy their March break at the same time. Um <laughs> I think we're, again, stuck in this uh, performing better than expected sort of bubble. Um, But the media is starting to, uh, despite all the uh, accolades that the premier keeps uh, giving them for their performance during the media's performance (laughs) during COVID, sort of discover and call out the government a little bit more in terms of what they're actually doing and not just what they're saying. Because yes, the numbers in Ontario seem to be manageable at the moment, but we're really, really far behind in terms of getting our tests done. We're ninth out of 10 in terms of the provinces in Ontario, and that's proportional. That's compared to uh, our share of the population. We're ninth out of 10 in terms of tests actually being completed. And most people, including my parents, having to wait nearly four 
days to a week before they get their COVID results after being in the hospital, which, you know, is really, really troubling for a lot of people who have to go home and self-isolate and worry about this. And if we don't have the data, we can't respond to it properly. The other thing that I saw the other day that was really concerning is that, um, you know, per population of 100,000 people, we have ninth, uh, we're ninth out of 10 in terms of the number of beds that we have available to our population for ICU beds. And so this is going to be really important down the line when we've got thousands of cases and, you know, a percentage of those are going to be hospitalized and a percentage of those are going to need to be on respirators. That's the peak of the curve, so to speak, of where people are going to be pushed out or squeezed from the system. And that's where a lot of the deaths have been happening around the rest of the world. So if we're not prepared for that and we, you know, we're not there, that's going to be a real issue. You know, so if we look to Europe, Germany has the most ICU beds per capita, I believe, um, in Europe, at least, and in the world. Um, And they have been able to keep their mortality rate as low as possible among the lowest, simply because of the greater access to ventilators and and ICU beds. So I think this that is going to be an incredible stressor on our system, the, the lack of critical care beds that we have, and how many ventilators we have. And we won't really know how bad it's going to be, you know, for a little while. And the government still has some time in order to build up that capacity. So uh, maybe moving from COVID, I want to take us back a few weeks ago to the moment we thought we were in, where Stephen Del Duca was going to make an entrance onto the provincial stage. Um, a new leader of a party that was riding high in the polls despite not having a leader um, against an unpopular premier. That has changed. And now COVID appears to have kind of taken this opportunity away from him. What do we think that means and how do we think we can get that opportunity again? Alvin, you ran against Stephen in the campaign. So I'm kind of curious for your thoughts on it particularly. I mean, it's 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 actually, I think, really interesting because all the leadership candidates, this, I, obviously, I haven't run for leader before, but from what everyone was telling us, we had one of the most cordial relationships with each other compared to any other party's leadership race before. I mean, we hung out for dinner uh, a couple of times uh, before or after debates um, just to sort of get to know each other and talk more about how we can um, help the party bounce back, right? But I think... I think with Stephen right now, uh, it's it's unfortunate for the Liberal Party and and for himself that um, within a matter of days of being elected leader, um, the entire pandemic really really blew up, blew up. Like there wasn't more than four days uh, before the NBA shut down, and then the next day, uh, almost everyone else started shutting down in terms of sports around North America, and then within a week. Um, we were talking about all schools, everybody, everybody, everybody in most society shutting down. And none of the stories were about uh, about politics. And we were all rallying around the flag and making sure that we were supporting our governments who were responding, what most of us think were pretty appropriately. So, you know, certainly a missed opportunity for Stephen and for the Ontario Liberal Party to have a kind of a get to know you phase, a bit of a honeymoon phase um, for the new leader. He had to cut his uh, his his trip short around Ontario. We had been traveling around Ontario a lot anyway as candidates, but this the the party had planned uh, several weeks of him touring around, getting to as many communities as possible, and getting sort of all that free earned media for being the new leader. 
I think the other big concern is that his tone has had to change almost immediately, right? He couldn't be the you know third party leader that was up there talking about all the challenges and problems that this government has introduced because of incompetence or mismanagement or whatever it was because we were perceived to be in this rally around the flag type moment where we couldn't be that critical of the government. So now what you're seeing is sort of a thank you, Premier, for doing as much as you've been doing. Let's continue working together. Um, find the people who are falling through the cracks. Make sure that, you know, we're helping the kids who were supposed to be in school and had programs to to have lunches or whatever it is, um, things that most people can agree with. But there's nothing that would really help him stand out because we have to show that we're supporting while also being constructive um, without perceiving to um, take this opportunity politically to take some shots or to to gain more support. So I think that's going to be really challenging for the Ontario Liberal Party and for Stephen specifically, who isn't a household name and was still still is going to need a lot of work to try and get people to know who he is. What's funny, when I was planning this pod originally, uh, I really wanted to have a, con- a pretty in-depth conversation about what the matchup looked like between Del Duca before and after COVID. And Alvin, you just sort of walked us through why and how it's different now. And of course, it obviously needs to be different. Um, but I, I, I'm curious to get into that idea a little bit more. What you know? What do we think Stephen Del Duca's candidate uh, strengths and weaknesses as a candidate could be before and after this crisis? What kinds of things do you think the opposition should have in mind right now? Yeah. Um, so right after Del Duco officially won his uh, leadership bid, there were a few polls that came out testing that provincial matchup for 2020. Um, campaign research uh, uh, did one uh, that was published in the Toronto Star and CBC as well that had Del Duca at a net negative six approval, um, which is, you know, not fantastic. However, Ford at the same time had a net negative uh, had a negative 32 approval uh which was actually up from 50 negative 50 and horvath was the only leader with a positive approval at 14 percent. so i think that really shows del duca's what del duca's weakness is is that people that know him don't like him and the people that of the that know the premiers don't like ford either but like him a lot less but they like andrea and they like andrea horvath however uh, the public really likes the Liberal Party. The branding for the Liberal Party is much stronger than Del Duca. Uh, Del Duca's personal uh, brand and party and name recognition is. In fact, there's a full 11 point difference between the Liberal Party, the Stevens Del Duca Liberal Party, and just the Liberal Party. They jump from you know being last 25 percent with Del Duca attached uh, with Del Duca attached to going up to 36 percent in the poll and matchup. Um, with just the Liberal Party. So I think that the brand, the brand of the Liberal Party is incredibly strong and that makes it fairly easy for him to overcome that net negative six approval among decided voters. You know, that brings me to my next point. That's only among decided voters. And as Alvin said, a lot of people don't know who Stephen Del Duca is right now. And the campaign research poll indicated that as well. Like 66% of Ontario's have no opinion of him or don't know who he is at all. So that leaves a lot of a lot of space for him to carve out a brand for himself, 
uh, a more positive brand in opposition to to Doug Ford and to Andrea Horvath and, and to really bump his numbers up. And he has two years to do that. And I think, but there are challenges um, with that as well, because he's not in the legislature currently. So he doesn't have as many opportunities to talk about the Economic Charter of Dignity, which has been his you know, signature piece of uh, legislative proposals. Something that actually like economic dignity is exactly like one of the things that goes to the heart of this particular moment. Yeah. And I, I think that it's actually like in, in, in some sense, it gives him more opportunities to talk about it and that and more, more opportunity than we would have had in normal times because people mm-hmm. are really looking for that secure, the economic security and Deltica has a signature piece of policy that could speak directly towards that. Does he need to, you know, be coming out and saying, you know, this government's incompetent, this government can't do this, this government's mismanaging everything? No, but I think he, you know, should start mentioning the the economic dignity charter as much as he can whenever he speaks, build a, a brand around that, and then once the crisis is over, really push it full throttle, just go at the government. But Del Duca, he does have an advantage over Andrea, is that even though people like Andrea, she has the opposite problem and opposite advantages that Del Duca has. She's been leader for 10 years, but still 34% people don't know her. So she's not connecting with the public. And the, the NDP as a party has a much weaker brand than Andrea does herself. So is that going to be able to translate into to votes in 2022? It, it's uncertain. And so I mm-hmm. think that gives him a, a slight edge, potentially. Herman, I think you raised something interesting in terms of what Stephen's brand is and really that he doesn't have one. Um, and while I agree, that's definitely an opportunity. I definitely think that the conservatives and probably the New Democrats as well see that as an opportunity to to frame him and brand him themselves. Right. And mm-hmm. I can imagine already that there are going to be, you know, lots of ads or lots of sort of political shots around uh, some of his history and and how he and the party deals with that is is going to really shape people's opinions uh, of him and of the party moving forward. Is it really a, a new party moving forward, uh, one that really heeded the results of the last election and is showing that it's you know really learned and taking that lesson and understood that it, it wasn't listening to uh, to Ontarians and were sent a message with a <laughs> with a Ford majority government, or is it more of the same as it has been in the past? So you know there. There's certainly some time around that uh, for them to develop that sort of reputation and uh, and branding. One of the interesting things that I heard from uh, some of the delegates when we were at the convention who said, Stephen doesn't come off as the most exciting person out there. He said so himself in his own speech that he's not uh, the most charismatic, but he can try to be funny, especially with his young daughters. Talked to a couple of delegates who tried to compare him or compared him openly to uh, kind of a John Tory type of person. And whatever your politics is, you can see that Tory was sort of coming forward when he ran against Rob Ford as the or Doug Ford as the sort of calm after the chaos of a Ford government. And I guess some people were excited about the fact or hardened by the fact that that might be a positive thing for the party moving forward, having a a person who's kind of calm and unknown like that, but viewed as sort of a, a manager of things to make sure that 
the trains run on time. I obviously prefer policies that are going to excite people and get people uh, out and about. But I think you're right. If if they start talking about, if he starts talking more about the economic identity charter and, and finding the right opportunities that don't seem like they're uh, taking advantage of a political situation, I think that could be helpful. I know for a fact that uh, Stephen has talked to the premier and said, you're not going to hear anything negative from me or from the Ontario Liberal Party about acting too quickly to deal with COVID. And that, you know, whatever you're thinking that you should be doing, you should just go ahead and do. And right now, as an opposition, we will support you. So I think the premier should have heeded that advice and um, not waited so long to do some of these things. And that's obviously going to be a moment later on in the future where we'll say, listen, we weren't here to criticize. We were here to help you work through this challenge and support you with uh, the actions that we think are appropriate. And you know, depending on how we end up with this, uh, they did or did not listen to that. And that resulted in what what's eventually going to happen. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that comes through in what both of you guys said is like, we are weirdly in a moment right now where the importance of collective action and government acting on behalf of all of us collectively has never been more obvious. And that was not the political calculus. I think even like a couple of weeks ago, like it's just the how quickly that has become consensus, even amongst conservatives, is dizzying. And so, you know, I think that for the branding of Stephen Del Duca, there are risks for him. And I mean, you know, like that whole pool story that came out, uh, I thought that was bullshit and bogus, but like having. Um, being branded as being in it for yourself, I think in this moment is particularly dangerous and every caution should be taken to avoid that perspective um, because that being the opinion of you is so much more dangerous now than it was. On the other hand, uh, you know, like uh, we mentioned that economic dignity charter is something that speaks to collective power of government to help everyone. And if that can be your brand, you know, and you can paint yourself as being more aggressive, you know, uh, uh, taking these collective actions. I think that's something that is more powerful now. So there's a lot of risk and a lot of reward, I think, for, for Stephen going forward. And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. I want to thank Alvin, Grima, and Harmon for participating in this discussion. We will be back next week for a discussion on basic income with none other than Senator Hugh Siegel. Uh, former Senator Hugh Siegel. Um, he was also Chief of Staff to Brian Mulroney and Bill Davis. So, you know, this is kind of like, I feel like, for an Ontario Politics podcast, kind of like one of the Super Bowls. It's hard to get someone who, it's hard to think of someone who's more ensconced in Ontario politics and more knowledgeable than Hugh. And he's t- going to talk to us about one of his personal passions, which is basic income. So excited about that. Have any thoughts on what you heard? Drop us a line at OntarioLabMail at gmail.com or on Twitter at OntarioLab. OntarioLab is recorded on the traditional territories of the Mississaugas, the Credit, and many nations. We honor and respect the treaties that are still alive today and support Indigenous people in the struggle to make Canada a less colonial, less racist place. Currently, there is a desire to want to get more medical support onto uh, reserves and into reserve communities. So if you see any petitions flying around about that, put your name on. We will see you next week.